This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Haffel. We've heard from Muslims in Colorado who say the last few months have brought back memories of the period after 9-11, when anti-Muslim sentiments ran high. Threats and hate crimes against Muslims in the U.S. rose sharply following the terrorist attacks in Paris and the mass shooting in San Bernardino. Muslims have also been singled out in the presidential campaign, with Republican candidate Donald Trump's pledge to ban Muslims from entering the U.S. We put a call out through our public insight network asking Muslims in Colorado how they're affected. Ryan Warner speaks now with Adib Khan of Denver, Mohammed Norzai of Aurora, and Maha Roberts of Littleton. And it's nice to have all three of you on the program. Muslims make up not quite 1% of Colorado's population, about 1% of the U.S. population. And yet they get a lot of attention in this country. I want to start with why each of you responded to our request. What are you eager to let people know, perhaps about yourself or your faith? And uh, Adib Khan, let's start with you. Well, I think there's an opportunity. You know, you hear so much negativity in the media today. And there's an opportunity and a responsibility, I believe, for Muslims who are given the chance to speak about our faith, speak about what we stand for, uh, to build relationships in our communities. And uh, just seeing what we see uh, out in the media, uh, there are so many misconceptions and so much ignorance about what Islam is that if there's an opportunity to help educate and inform it's something that we should take advantage of. Okay, biggest misconception that you face? Well, I mean, I, I think maybe not necessarily something I've, I've faced personally with the people who I inter- encounter, but just what I see in the media and what I see uh, with the discourse is the violent nature of Islam and the representation that Muslims are terrorists. Uh, these notions are foreign to me as a Muslim because in all the places I've been, whether it be Pakistan or Jordan or Turkey or anywhere in the U.S. and every Muslim I've encountered, I've never met one who has an inclination towards violence or who has any other inclinations uh, of the sort. And and the, what I know of and study of Islam, there there is nothing of the of the nature of the religion that leads one along this path. Maha Roberts of Littleton, you've actually been wanting to write a book that explains the faith, something you could give, I suppose, to the people who ask you questions. What are you most eager to let people know? Why did you reach out to us? I reached out to you because I come from a family, my parents and my whole um, Al-Husseini, which is my maiden name. They were in Jerusalem. They grew up there. And they always told the stories when they were there, how peaceful it was. They lived next to you know, Jewish faith people, uh, Christians, Catholics, Roman Catholics, and they all got along. Everyone got along together. What What's happening today is so sad because I believe, first of all, I'm Muslim, I'm Sunni, and I grew up loving every religion. I have my best friend is Jewish. Um, you know, um, I have a ton of Christian um, friends as well. And uh, the biggest misconception I'm seeing is that everyone thinks Muslims are one religion. First of all, I want to educate people that Islam is more than one sector. There's Sunni, Shia, and Sufism, which is very similar to Buddhism, but Islam. So I want to educate people there's different religions. Um, and and what, what is the importance of knowing that? Because I think right now they're lumping us all together. Um, they think every Arab is Muslim, which is, first of all, not true. There are Christian Arabs. Thank you. 
they need to understand that there's different sectors of Islam, like there's different sectors of Christianity. Um, when I was in college in Madison, Wisconsin, I took history of Christianity. Um, you know, my my parents uh, sent both my sisters to Marymount, which is um, run by nuns, and we're Muslim. So we love every religion, and I think that's important for people to know. Um, so. Well, you love every religion, and others that you know love every religion, but in the same way that you don't want to paint with a broad brush that, you know, all Muslims are X or Y. I suppose it's, it's, it's the same for, the, for this issue as well. Yes, um, and I think there's a big misconception the way, um, as we know politically, the way it's broadcasted um, on the news. You don't hear – you only hear about the bad things that um, Arabs or Muslims do. You don't hear about everything else that's going on around in the world. All right. Mohammed Norzai, you are a former president of the Colorado Muslim Society. And uh, tell us why you responded to our call and what you are most eager to let people know. Well, everything that they said. <laughs> Plus, uh, you know, there's a misconception. Another misconception in a society is that uh, Muslims, uh, their religion is violent and inside violence or the God they believe in. Uh, is not so loving or merciful. This notion that there's something fundamental about <clears throat> Islam that leads to violence. Right. And, and that's a misconception you deal with uh, often. Of course. You know, first of all, what we call in Arabic Allah, which means the God Almighty, and, and we believe that there's only one God for all people, the Christian, the Jews, the, everyone who believes in God is he's the only creator of the whole universe. So if you believe in God, he is God, and you can call him in different languages, different names. You can call him God or you can call him Allah or whatever you want to call him. But the same very God that the Christians will say the very loving God. We also believe that he's a very loving God. He's the most merciful God. As a matter of fact, two of his uh, attributes are Ar-Rahman and Ar-Rahim, which means the most compassionate, the most merciful. They are used in the very first verse of the Qur'an. And so how, if there is such a message of peace, you say, infusing the Quran, how is it so often that uh, Islamic extremists interpret that same book that you read as a document of peace uh, as one that allows them to fly planes into buildings? Of course, that's a good question. Well, throughout history, if we look at the Islamic history. We have had extremists throughout our history, but they were always a minority fringe group, some people who went to extreme. And there are extremists of different faiths. And that's exactly what I wanted to say. If you go to Christianity, Judaism, or even Buddhism, you find that some people went to extreme and they still do until today. Also, in Islam, we have majority of the Muslims are very great and kind and very nice people. But we also have criminals, those who steal those who rob, those who might rape, and those who will go to extremes such as extremist groups that we see. Muhammad, do you see passages <clears throat> that get misconstrued? Is there something specific you'd point to, or any of you for that matter? Well, of course, you know, there at the time of Prophet Muhammad, when the non-Muslims of Mecca they were attacking the Muslims, and they were trying to f destroy the Muslims. The Muslims were driven out of their homes, and they had to leave Mecca and go to Medina. And then they were attacked over there. They were not allowed to fight back. But then verses came in the Quran allowing, allowing them to fight back and defend themselves. And those verses that were sent at that time for a particular reason, for a particular time, 
in place in history. Some of the people now, they use those and to use it for today, for example. You know, when the Quran talked about you can slay them, the unbelievers, and it was talking about unbelievers of, unbelievers of Mecca, and you can kill them. And now they are saying, oh, we can kill unbelievers wherever we see them. Yep. Baha, go ahead. Yeah. Um, another thing also I want to point out is um, regarding ISIS, which is the big word here. In Islam, um, ISIS is actually the way I was brought up. They're going to hell because, um, first of all, uh, the way the Prophet Muhammad, which is our prophet, um, is we're about peace and uh, Muslims, if you want to become a Muslim, it's something that you decide to. It's not something that a belief that should be thrown at you. Um, we never were that way. So that's something we need to always remember that we're about peace and um, it's not about war. And, and, you know, that's what the Quran teaches us. And, and I always want to add to that. I mean, Zadib, yeah. what we see today, in my opinion, is, is really just a manifestation of, of what we see in the political world. You know, there are... There are there are wars that are taking place in the Middle East. There are governments which have been corrupt. There are much like you see a lot of the anger in today's world about our political system. There is anger in in some places that is causing political ramifications, such as vandals rising up and taking control of situations. If people want to use scripture from the Quran or from the Bible to justify their violent acts, to justify their, um, you know, their terrorism or whatever it might be, they're going to have an opportunity to do so. But that in no way means that just because they do that, that they are an actual representation of what the Quran says or what the scripture says. To the point that was brought up earlier, our prophet fled violence. Mm-hmm. He sought to seek peaceful resolutions. People did not people did not like him because he promoted the idea of the one God and told us to uh, to bow down in submission our lives to our Creator, to return to a life of civility. And and morality. And because of that, people wanted to kill him and his followers. And so he fled and he fled again and he fled again till he had almost nothing left to do except for these verses that came that said you have to defend yourselves. And those are so often taken out of context. Maha, you grew up in Saudi Arabia in parts. And I want to read from Amnesty International's summary Mm -hmm. of how women are treated Mm -hmm. there. Uh, Quote, women and girls remain subject to discrimination in law and in practice. Women had subordinate status to men and they were inadequately protected against sexual violence. Domestic violence remained endemic. Uh, From your perspective, having grown up in Saudi, what do you say to people who perceive that not just being a Saudi thing, but a Muslim thing or an Islamic thing? Great question. It's not a Muslim thing. It is a Saudi thing. Because I um, also grew up in Jordan. You know, I was born in Lebanon. My parents are from Jerusalem. I know friends from Syria. Um, Saudi Arabia is its own, its own culture. And that's a cultural thing. That's not a Muslim thing. So you have to remember that, too. There's a difference. And I don't think people understand that. Um, there's, there's culture and there's religion. And I think people confuse both. Uh, yeah, I in Saudi Arabia, I had to cover up. Um, I had to go to an all-girls school only. I couldn't leave the house. You unless, couldn't drive on your own. No, right? no. Um, I mean, my, I had to be with my father or my uncle 
Um, I couldn't really do anything. I didn't have any options to do a lot back then because, I mean, that was back, gosh, I didn't move out to the U.S. till 89. So I'm talking prior to 89. Um, I was lucky enough. I was able to travel a lot to Europe. So I saw the big picture. Um, and I felt like I had to be two different people, you know, one person outside and one person inside. Um, but also one thing I do want to mention is um, that I, I really like people to know is that in Islam, we are told to respect Jesus equally as to the Prophet Muhammad. And I think a lot of people don't understand that. I, I don't know if they agree with me, but that was the first thing is that Jesus is a prophet and he is highly regarded in Islam. Who told you that? Was that your parents or was that an imam? <laughs> that's that's in reading um, the Quran, reading also, um, the you know, what the Prophet Muhammad's sayings are as well. Not only that, all prophets, Moses as Mm -hmm. well, and all the prophets that were ever sent from God, we're supposed to treat all of them with respect, and we never go against any of them. Correct. A little bit more about each of your backgrounds. Adib, you grew up in a small town in Wyoming where there really wasn't a Muslim community to speak of, I suppose outside maybe your own family. Um, How did you practice Islam then? Well, I mean, Islam is a relationship that you have with your creator. That's the nature of what Islam is. And so, you know, I was unfortunate in some ways because I did not have a Muslim community around me or a masjid that I could visit on a regular basis. Um, However, um, I had my parents. I had my mother and um, I have the Quran and the teachings of the Quran. And, And to be a Muslim, it's really about understanding that where we come from is our creator uh, that Muhammad, peace be upon him, is our prophet, and that he came to deliver the Quran, which gives us our guidance and our morality. And so practicing was, you know, I was the one student who was fasting during Ramadan, but it was an opportunity. I always enjoyed being able to share why I was doing this with other people, and it, it felt uh, it felt like, I, I think to some extent now, looking back at all of it, that experience for me was unique. And it, was, it allowed me to really relate with many of the Christian community that was around me and understand where they come from with their beliefs. And because of that, um, you know, I feel like it's a, an opportunity and a responsibility for me to help those who are Christians and who want to learn or who may be ignorant or who may be misinformed to learn about what Islam is all about. And you're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Nathan Heffel. When we come back, Ryan Warner has more from our three guests, Adib Khan, Mohammed Norzai, and Maha Roberts. This is Colorado Public Radio News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Let's rejoin Ryan Warner's conversation now with three Colorado Muslims, Adib Khan of Denver, Mohammed Norzai of Aurora, and Maha Roberts of Littleton. The discussion comes at a time when anti-Muslim sentiments are running high. Muhammad, I want to talk about your earliest experiences with Islam. You left the faith as a teenager growing up in Afghanistan. Tell us what happened. When I was about 15, uh, that's when I actually, you know, was close to one of my teachers in school who was an atheist. And uh, after discussions that I had with him about religion, I became an atheist myself. And so I wasn't a practicing Muslim when I came over here and I was about 20 when I came here. Uh, and it took me until when I, I was 25 to come to the conclusion that there has to be a God, there has to be a creator. Uh, 
Was there a pivotal experience that led you to that? Well, it's just that my background is in geology, and when I saw how interesting the Earth is and how calculated, mathematically accurate, and and then I thought of the rest of the universe, and I couldn't uh, say that all this happened accidental, and I came to the conclusion there has to be a creator. And that's how uh, then I got interested in religion, and I kind of studied different religions, and I didn't even study anything about Islam until the last. That was the last thing on my list because I thought I understood Islam, and I have to say truly, I didn't like Islam based on my experience back home in Afghanistan. Yes, hmm. but then after I started studying Islam, and that was ten years later when I was thirty-five. Uh, then I found that this was everything I could imagine or I hoped that a religion could be. Was there uh, perhaps something at the top of your list that brought you back to Islam? Well, one of those things are I actually uh, did go. My wife is from here. She was Christian, or and I did go to church with her. And ultimately, I found that I have many questions that they were not able to answer. But when I came to start studying Islam, my questions were answered. Give me an example of a question. Well, I really, uh, for example, why bad things happen to people on earth. And God has a plan, you know, in Christianity, they say, for everybody. And it's all God's will, you know. So you're supposed to accept everything as a plan that God made. And many people don't like God's plan. They say, I don't want this. Uh, However, I found in Islam that we have a free will. And God doesn't control everybody in everybody's lives. He's given us a free will, and we have the right to do good or evil, to be good or bad. Adib, I understand that you have a story that you'd like to share about being singled out for your faith. And this actually took place at a funeral. Is that right? Yeah, it was something that happened recently. Um, I have a cousin, uh, 20 years old, was diagnosed with cancer, and... um, Within three weeks, he had passed away. This happened this last fall. Very sad uh, to see someone so young lose their life. And uh, we, his funeral was here in Denver, and we had probably around 100 Muslims, many of whom who just came out for the funeral service itself when we buried him out in the Islamic Cemetery, um, which is outside east of Denver. And while we were all in a moment of prayer as his body was lowered, uh, a truck drove by in the distance and yelled out, you know, F the ragheads. Um, and later we heard gunshots fired in the air. And to me, uh, you know, it wasn't something that I encounter a lot. Luckily in the state, we have very um, open-minded and, and loving people and neighbors. And so I don't want that to be an indictment on Coloradans as a whole. But to experience it in that moment was definitely revealing. And I think the thing for me, it was just sad because I wonder if that individual, if their loved one was being buried and had a funeral, if they would have, how they would have felt if someone would have yelled something so heinous during that moment when you're in prayer. Um, And so it is what it is. And it's a state of um, the incitement that ignorance causes. And people have a nature, I guess, it seems like, to... uh, drive towards hate, and people are fuming those flames um, currently in our society. And I don't know if that ever would have happened before um, until recently because of the hatred that you hear around our country. Maha, does this time in history feel similar to the time after 9-11? Funny enough, 
I didn't feel – I mean, the only incident that happened to me is me and my son were um, flying out to Jordan, and we were at the airport um, in New Jersey, and I remember them checking me a little bit more than often, and I re- I'm already scared of flying, so I was already nervous. And um, I said, really, you're checking me? My last name is, you know, Roberts, and my son's last name is Roberts. Why are you checking me right now? And uh, it's funny, they upgraded me to first class. But that was the only thing that ever happened to me when I got back to uh, Denver. I actually got calls from people I work with, colleagues, making sure I was okay. So I actually didn't feel anything from 9-11. But I'm feeling it today from Trump. Today, to me personally is worse than 9-11, believe it or not. Well, let's talk about the presidential campaign. So Republican frontrunner Donald Trump (sighs) called for a ban on Muslims entering the U.S. His Republican opponents and the Democratic candidates criticized him for it. In a poll conducted on Super Tuesday by the Council on American-Islamic Relations, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders got the most support. But this is interesting. The top Republican in these Muslims' minds uh, was Donald Trump. Um, I want to know if you as Muslims at all share the fear that seems to be uh, rampant in in circles in this country that radicals, Islamic radicals, could get into the country and do harm. That is the fundamental fear that I think Trump is speaking to. And I'd like you to reflect on the fear and whether you at all share it, uh, Mohammed Norzai. Well, some people always play on the fear of the people. So they can use them. And that's what Trump is doing. He wants people to vote for him, so he wants to scare them. I'm the guy, he says, that will keep you safe. But to the the concern that um, Islamic fundamentalists could make it into the country and, and be a threat, is it a fear you share? But no. First of all, if we look at this country... You know, in 2015, I think uh, there has been over 300 mass shootings here in this country. And only a couple of them were done by Muslims. Mm -hmm. So this country is not, uh, you know, a stranger to mass shootings and violence. But nevertheless, if we really look at it, the percentage of Muslims committing these acts of violence are very low. But yet the politicians and those with some kind of uh, uh, agenda, they like to bring this up to people and make this the biggest issue. Mm-hmm. There's, fi- there's 15,000 murders that happen in this country every single year. And since 2005, I think the number is something like 45 victims of so-called Muslim or Islamic terrorism. Um, so it's it's literally 0.00001% or something like that. And so it is blown out of proportion because it incites people's fears because most Americans don't have a relationship with a Muslim or they don't understand Islam and there's this natural fear of the unknown and politicians like to take advantage of that. But I will say that is there a fear of it? I think the biggest fear I have is that the United States continues to spend trillions of dollars in warfare. Innocent families are being killed in this warfare that is happening in the Middle East. And any time that happens, regardless of the people's faith, regardless of the country that is involved, there are going to be ramifications that will sometimes arise in the form of terrorism or violent uprising. This is all of history. And every type of people, this is the kind of thing that has happened. And so I think we must examine Um, you know, what are the root causes? Because it is not the nature of Islam as a religion. It is a political manifestation we are seeing. Also, don't forget that um, 
there, like you said, there's murders everywhere. I mean, I don't want to bring this up, but years ago there was Waco, Texas. I mean, that wasn't a Muslim. But it seems like to me that when it is a Muslim thing, all of a sudden it's on the news. It's a big, big, Huge big story. story. And it's, it's, it's broadcasted everywhere. But yet Chicago, I mean, how many deaths are there every single day? How many things happen in schools and everything? But someone brings it up once on the news and then it's forgotten. But if it's tied to a Muslim, oh, my gosh, this no, we true. can't forget it. It's going on for a month or two. Mohammed Nurzai, again, a former head of the Colorado Muslim Society. Uh, you grew up in Afghanistan. You have a story to tell about praying in a park and how a moment that might be uncomfortable at first could be a teachable moment. Will you tell us this story? Well, when I first came to start practicing Islam, and I was still learning, one day I was uh, by a park in DTC area. Denver, and, Denver Tech Center. Yes. Okay. And I, it was time for prayer, so I was praying. And a young man stopped by, and he said, excuse me, can I ask you a question? And he was curious what I was doing, obviously. And I didn't stop my prayer. So after like a few seconds, he asked me again. He thought I didn't hear. He said, excuse me, can I ask you a question? I still ignored him. And then the third time, he turned around and left. And later, you know, I was feeling bad that I could have had a conversation with him, but yet I thought, well, I couldn't stop my prayers. But later I learned myself, you know, to my ignorance at the time, that Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, he stopped even when he was giving a sermon of Friday prayers uh, to answer questions to a non-Muslim who was interested about Islam. To this notion of answering questions, even what we're doing here in this studio, an interfaith dialogue, I want to run by you a quote from a philosophy professor at the University of Denver. Um, I'll say for disclosure's sake, she's also a friend of mine, Sarah Pesson. And she wonders whether most interfaith dialogues can be summed up as, keep talking until I don't want to kill you anymore. That is to say, talk until I'm comfortable enough with you till I see enough of you in me that I no longer hate you. As opposed to, you know what? You're really different from me. I can't even see myself in you necessarily, and that's okay. Would you reflect on this idea a bit? Are interfaith dialogues in and of themselves flawed concepts? I I don't think they're flawed concepts by any means. I, I don't necessarily uh, agree with the quote. I, I think our approach as Muslims is to spread uh, graciousness and to spread compassion and to spread love in, in all of the interactions that we have. And when we talk about Islam or we understand another person's perspective, we must understand it from a position that we are not God and we cannot judge. Um, and so we must be understanding. We must be compassionate. And, and that is the nature of how we should conduct ourselves in all dialogues, including interfaith dialogues. Maha, what do you think? I, I've had a lot of conversations um, with, with mainly Christians and uh, some you know Jewish faith as well. I never have a problem. I, I pretty much kind of uh, try to understand where they're coming from. And um, maybe, you know, explain to them how it works in a way that they understand it. Um, so a lot of times what I do is try to find um, the similarity between Islam and Christianity and Judaism because all three books are the same. And the biggest thing I always get is what you mentioned, uh, was mentioned earlier, is uh, Allah is God. I keep getting people saying, do you pray to Allah? Well, it's your same as your God. If you're Jew or a, or a Christian, 
I'm praying to the same God. It's not a different God. So um, I think once I bring that up and, and tell them how similar the stories in the Bible and the Torah and the Quran are, they're the same stories. They're like, oh, I didn't know. And then the conversation just flows and they listen. But the idea fundamentally there is you guys have to be similar for them to like you enough. Correct. Is that a flawed concept? I, I don't mind it. I mean, uh-huh. I'm here in the U.S., right? I came here. I need to— I, I think you know. there are—I think the point is is that there are opportunities to create connections, and that's the point of our, our prophets, as mentioned earlier. You know, Musa is our—Moses is our prophet. Abraham is our prophet. Jesus, or Isa, is our prophet. And so let's build upon the, the shared right. knowledge and the shared belief. I mean, if Muslims followed how Jesus— treated other people and how we went out to serve the poor. This is what the same thing we are called to do as Muslims. And in the very beginning of Islam, Muhammad went to a Christian to ask, where are these revelations coming from? He sent many of his earliest followers who were fleeing persecution to go to a Christian empire because he knew they would be safe there. So the interfaith dialogue uh, has has been since the very beginning of Islam itself. Muhammad Norisai, why don't you give us final thoughts? Well, The dialogues are good. Of course, we have to continue and we have to understand. In Islam, we actually have acceptance, you know, for all people and all religions uh, of the world. But uh, the the final thing I want to say is we Muslims, we need to stay true to our religion, practice our religion, and be proud of our religion as Muslims, regardless of what people uh, think of us. And our action will speak louder, of course, you know, than words. Of course, there are some extremists there. But majority of the Muslims, they are very good people, very peaceful, kind, and gracious people. Does it frustrate you that you have to remind people of that? No, I think it's a challenge. We have to work towards and we have to overcome. And I think that's what makes life interesting. I want to thank the three of you for sharing your views with us. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Maha Roberts lives in Littleton. Mohammed Norzai lives in Aurora. And Adib Khan lives in Denver. They spoke with Ryan Warner. Our conversation about being a Muslim in Colorado was informed by CPR's Public Insight Network, where you can connect your experience to the news. Sign up at CPRnews.org. There you can also read some of the other responses we received from Muslims in Colorado. Coming up, how tax refund fraud might delay you getting your state refund check. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. A plea for patience now when it comes to receiving your state tax refund. Officials with the Colorado Department of Revenue say it could take up to 60 days to receive it. That's because of measures put in place to combat a wave of recent tax refund fraud. To find out more, CPR's Joanne Allen spoke with Rose Silva of the State Revenue Department. If a return shows characteristics of of refund fraud, we will stop processing. We will contact the taxpayer by letter. In some cases, we will contact the taxpayer by phone. And we certainly understand that taxpayers will be uncomfortable when someone calls them on the phone, and, and they should be uncomfortable. But they can verify the name of the person, ask the person their name, what office they work for. Our employees will be more than happy to confirm their name and their office. The fraudster may not. Silva says as a security step, some refunds will be converted from direct deposit to paper check and mailed to the taxpayer's address. Because fraudsters like to 
put in direct deposit accounts to their banks or their debit cards to thwart that we're sending it to the taxpayer. But if the taxpayer hasn't filed yet, that refund check comes with a letter that says, we converted this refund from direct deposit to paper check. If this is not your refund, please call us at this number. Isn't that interesting how uh, it's kind of going retro instead of direct deposit where in order to uh, work against fraud, we have to go back to paper checks? It, it, it is really sad that it's come to that, but unfortunately it has become the new normal that many entities have to take these measures to evaluate returns and verify that they are coming from the taxpayer, not from a fraudster. So not all, but some refunds may be delayed up to 60 days. Will it be more than 60 days in some cases? We're hoping not. That's why we're just saying up to up to 60 days at this point. There might be some that will be more, but we just wanted to warn taxpayers to be patient. Uh, we do have a resource on the web called Revenue Online, which assists taxpayers in finding out the status of their refund. So they can go to the Colorado Department of Revenue website. At the top of the page is the Revenue Online link. It's a free service. Not only can you file your income tax, but on the bottom left corner of the page under Quick Links, there's a service called Where's My Refund, and you can track the status of your refund there so that you don't have to call us or try to visit one of our offices. Do you think this will be a problem in the ensuing years, like in 2017, or will there be some sort of a fix that will work from here on out? Well, the Colorado Department of Revenue is working with other State Departments of Revenue, the IRS, uh, tax software companies, tax professionals, very actively to try to combat uh, refund fraud. Unfortunately, it's a byproduct of this overall situation we have in our society with data theft. On the Colorado Department of Revenue website, we have a, a, a resource called Taxpayer Security Awareness at www.taxcolorado.com at the bottom of the page. Identity theft doesn't happen when you file a tax return. The theft has already occurred before you filed, so be vigilant with your, your personally identifiable information. Rose Silva of the Colorado Department of Revenue speaking with CPR's Joanne Allen. A request for your input now. Next week, we have our monthly chat with Governor John Hickenlooper, and we want to hear from you. What questions do you have for the governor? Let us know by emailing us, news at CPR.org. And still to come, how one man turned his love of Irish folk songs into a popular local band. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. A cassette of Irish drinking songs. That was the start of Denver musician Adam Goldstein's love affair with Celtic music. This enduring fascination led him to start a band with two other Colorado musicians. They call themselves Avornine. There's a nice sweet lass and her name's Mary Mac. Make no mistake, she's the miss I'm going to attack. There's an awful lot of bells that would get up on her track. But I'm thinking that they'll have to get up early. I'm Mary Mac's father's making Mary Mac marry me. My father's making me marry Mary Mac. I'm going to marry Mary for my Mary to take care of me. Well, I'll be making Mary when I marry Mary Mac. And this sound has fared well for the trio since their launch in 2014 and their first album, Beloved, released in 2014. Avornine has been named the house band at downtown Denver's largest Irish pub, Katie Mullins, and will travel to Celtic festivals around the country. 
Goldstein joins me now. Uh, welcome to the program, Adam. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I, I understand you and your bandmates, violinist C.L. Morden and multi-instrumentalist Eric Parker, don't have direct ties uh, to Irish folk music, but all three of you are longtime musicians and have really connected with the traditions and style of this genre. What makes it so um, compelling to you? That's true. Uh, I myself, I'm a rare Colorado native. I grew up in Aurora. Uh, and for me personally, um, uh, you mentioned the cassette that I found when I was right out of high school. Yeah. It was an anonymous cassette. No artists were credited. It was just a random recording in some Irish pub, unnamed. And from the first time I heard it, it just felt right. It felt like something uh, that was natural and it made sense. And um, speaking for the other members of the band, C uh, is from Northern California. Uh, and she comes from background uh, with a, a father that played a lot of Celtic music. Okay. So that came from childhood. And Eric uh, majored in jazz at Lamont School of Music, and he's a saxophone player. But he found Flogging Molly when he was in high school, and it just went from there. So I think for all of us, it was just a very natural kind of attraction and love for the music that stemmed deep from an, our DNA, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, so so does does the band identify more with Celtic music or, or, or Irish folk music? I mean, because I, I know there is a difference between the two. There is a difference, and at our core, it's more Irish than anything else. Okay. Most of the standards that we play are Irish. Most of the ballads that I sing are Irish, but. With Celtic music, uh, a lot of stuff comes into play, and there's a lot of cross-pollination, as it were. So we play some Scottish songs. Okay. Uh, we even play some polkas. There's some Breton stuff that goes in there. There's some—not uh, a lot of Welsh stuff, but some early New England folk music that was directly impacted by those traditions and started to morph once it crossed the ocean. So most of the songs on Beloved are standards. Yes. Uh, there is one original track on it, though. Uh, it's called Iman. Of me now, all lost and alone, awaiting the day when we meet again. I remember the sound of your soft, dulcet tones with the smell of your hair as it blew. You call the song a, a tearjerker, uh, and you wrote it when you were around 19, right? Right. So what made you revisit it for this album? So the basic melody uh, is an old Irish air, and it okay. was sung in Gaelic. And I, Gaelic is a very difficult language to learn on many levels. I mean, people have a, enough of a difficult time pronouncing the name of our band. <laughs> uh, so I wrote lyrics when I was 18 or 19 because I just thought the melody was so gorgeous. And then when we started the band, uh, it was just something that I brought up during one of our jam sessions. C took to it very quickly. Uh, when Eric came in with a flute, we just thought it was perfect instrumentation. And it was, for us, the ideal way to kind of bridge old tradition with what we were trying to do. Uh, and it, per it really did serve as a perfect transition because since the album came out, we've been really working on writing more originals that take that same tack, fusing tradition with sounds that we want to incorporate that represent our background, our, our status as Americans, our status as fans of a whole host of different genres. So it was really kind of the kickoff to what I see as our continuing musical mission, as it were. Isn't it a challenge to write original songs that build on the centuries-old tradition? Isn't that difficult for you? It would seem so at first, but what I've realized over the past two years being in this band, C and I got to go to Ireland last year. Mm -hmm. We've 
made a point of going to as many concerts and festivals as possible. This is a vibrant and uh, constantly updating genre of music. And part of the appeal are the songs that go back centuries and centuries. But there are artists out there that are really pushing the limit and uh, bringing this music into the 21st century. And so are there influences of, of today's genres that you bring into this, or is it completely traditional? For me, I was a folk nerd growing up. I, I'm a big Bob Dylan fan yeah. and all of all of his successors, so I bring that kind of songwriting style in. Uh, but in terms of melodically, C is just an amazing fiddle player. And just in terms of the approach to melody, it's so dense and, and there's so many possibilities that... We, we always feel like we're constantly learning and trying to, to bring this up to the future. And here's this instrumental from the song, and, right. and you hear some of these influences there. Right. And you hear how that intertwines there, this blend of music. With this coupling of the modern with this traditional, um, we don't want to forget about the the standards and, and how they seem to tell these very, very rich stories, these historical stories. You know, for example, uh, the song Eileen Oog. It doesn't sound like it. You know, it's kind of upbeat, but you've, mm-hmm. my heart is growing gray ever since the day you wandered far away. I mean, that sounds like heartbreak, it, heartbreak I, to me. I love that song so much. And that was a song that I discovered when I was 21 living in, in France when mm-hmm. I learned a lot of these songs. And I love it so much because it does pair that epic poetic kind of heartbreak uh, with this bouncy, jaunty feel. And Percy French, who wrote that song, I mean, the the words are just so lyrical and uh, get to me so much. Um, There's good fish in the sea, but there's no one like the pride of Petrovor. It just rolls off with this kind of poetry that uh, has kept me obsessed for, for two decades. When selecting standards to to include on the album or, or play at the the pub, how important is it to have themes that still feel relevant today? Uh, is there nostalgia to this? And it, that depends on the crowd. So I would say one of the best kind of situations we could hope for at Katie Mullins uh-huh. is when we have fans of the music come in. There's a lot of people from Europe, a lot of Irish people that come in and uh when you have a crowd that knows the tunes and knows specifically when to clap and when to stomp their feet, that's a whole different effect. And I'll tell you, I've been to a lot of shows and I covered music for a long time for for local newspapers. And I have yet to find that kind of impact when you're in a crowd that knows these tunes, that can sing along. It's so communal and it's so joyful and it does really tap into a tradition that you feel goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. Is there a sentimental side to this for, for you and for maybe the people that listen at the pub or, or to your album? I'll tell you, one of the quotes uh, that I always think of is Bob Dylan talking about the Clancy Brothers, who were a big folk act in the 60s and they did Irish music. And he said what appealed to him when he was really young and picking up all these different traditions, what, what he found fascinating about this band is that they would sing these songs that were rebel songs and war songs and then immediately go to the most tender 
heartbreaking love ballad you could think of. And he would say, you know, they chop off your head and then weep over uh, lost love. And that that's what I see as the appeal. And you kind of have to cater it. I mean, we play uh, in the pub and there's times where we have to keep it upbeat and rocking. Yeah. I open for a burlesque show at Lanny's Clock Tower every week. And the the mission there is to get people clapping and to get people in the mood. So you really have to tailor it for the situation. Well, let's hear another standard from the album now called King of the Fairies. Now, you've said this song makes you sentimental. Uh, what's your personal tie to it? I mentioned that I learned a lot of these songs when I was living in France. I went to study as a college student, and I ended up spending every night in the pub playing music, and I stopped going to classes, so I got a different kind of education. <laughs> but when I was there, I, I became friends with uh, a man named Patrick who was in his 70s. He was British. He was a World War II vet. He lived on a barge in the river. Uh, and he played music with me. He he gave me the songbook that was composed of sheet music that he had picked out. And this song was in that collection. And I didn't learn it when I was there. But lo and behold, 15 years later, when I started playing music with C and Eric, that was one of the tunes that we kind of happened upon and discovered. And that is just one of my favorite instrumentals. It's It's sums up uh, kind of the musical poetry of yeah. the genre for me. And it has these very personal connections too, so it resonates. So, so what's the ultimate goal here? Uh, do you hope to hear your band on a pop or mainstream radio station someday? Is that your goal? I always joke that we play music that isn't necessarily going to break into the top 10 pop hits along with Justin Bieber and uh, those kind <laughs> of artists. Katy but, Perry or right, like that. Right, right. You know, but... Ultimately, I would really love to bring more awareness here to this kind of music and uh, expose people where I'm from to the tradition and just how entrancing and vibrant and really uh, uh, fascinating this music can be. And the other part of it is that I would love to find a way to get us all back to Ireland as often as possible. (laughs) Well, you and Violinist C, uh, CL did tour yes. uh, Ireland, right? And, yeah. and while you were there, we performed uh, one of the songs called Easy and Slow in, in a pub there. And, and I want to wrap up on, on, on that tune. Uh, you say it was one of the highest points of your life. And, and while we listen, briefly tell me wh- what happened there. So we had, we had rented a car and we were driving all around the country. We tried to fit in as much as possible in two weeks. We went to this little tiny town in Claire called Doolin, which was reputed to have the best music. Everywhere we went, they saw our instruments and they said, you have to go to Doolin, you have to go to Doolin. And it was this town, I think during the winter, the population is maybe 500 people, 600 people. I may be wrong, but it's a very small town. And we went in uh, to a pub. They saw we had instruments. They all encouraged us to come up and sit down. Uh, And I sat down and I sang this song with uh, these Irish musicians and they were silent and respectful, and they let me sing the whole thing. And one of the women said that this was the best rendition of the tune that she'd ever heard. And I almost broke into tears at that moment. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. came from Dungannon would bring her back home in the sweet by and by. And what's it to end?
Adam Goldstein from the Denver Celtic band Avorni. You can hear the trio live today, as well as on Fridays at Katie Mullen's Irish Restaurant and Pub in Denver. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Happy St. Patrick's Day. And I tied up me sleeve for to buckle her shoe All along by St. Thomas Street Down by the Liffey The sun had gone down And the evening grew dark Along by King's Bridge And be God in a jiffy Me arms were around